Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. That's on page 964 if you're using the Pew Bible. 2 Corinthians 1 to 11. It's page 964 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Morning, Bethel. Good to see you all this morning. All right, so we're going to start a new series this week. We're going to be walking through the book of 2 Corinthians um, for the, I don't know how long it'll take, maybe five months, something like that, four or five months. Um, So the title of this morning's message is God's M.O. Um, Do you know what M.O. stands for? Okay, so you might hear it you know, on a crime show or a movie where one detective says to another, you know, what was his M.O.? And I just wonder if, just want to make sure this is clear as we get started. M.O. does not mean motive. Like, what was his motive for killing the person? M.O. means mode of operation, modus operandi in Latin, which means what was his method of working? Like, how did he do it? So, People have methods to their madness, right? Um, Typical modes of operation. So getting to know a person means getting to know how they work. So you might do this with your boss or with your manager. And maybe um, if you are fortunate, you have a boss or manager where that boss communicates well and she listens to team feedback before making decisions and maybe she also works to build consensus rather than operating like some reclusive dictator and that's her MO. Or you might really struggle because your boss is manipulative and a micromanager and the performance goals are like hitting a moving target. You know, it seems to just change all the time. And he's quick to find scapegoats if things aren't going well. Again, his mode of operation. How about the leader who says, yeah, 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 when you're talking to him and then doesn't follow through? Says, yeah, 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 to somebody else that's asking something totally different. So we can both be blessed and cursed by different modes of operation. Spouses have MOs. Some good, some bad, some ugly. Parents have MOs. 
Some good, some bad, some ugly. Children's, children's, children have MOs, right? Little kids learn which parent to go to and some good, some bad, some really bad. Spiritual leaders have MOs. Maybe you have some painful experiences in the past because of the mode of operation in a church, the way authority was handled in a church. Or how about somebody like Benny Hinn? What's his MO? He's got an MO, doesn't he? So you could go on and on. What about God? Does God have an MO? How does God operate? What are his characteristic modes and methods for accomplishing his purposes? How does he deal with us? How does he do his work? Actually, we sung some pretty sweet truths about his modes of operation. Um, but 2 Corinthians is going to really provide some important answers to that question. And it actually does so through the MO of the Apostle Paul. So precisely because Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, to learn his MO is to actually learn God's MO. And Paul's mode of operation was actually under fire, which is why he had to write this letter. So a lot has transpired between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, or at least what we know as 1 and 2 Corinthians. Um, if you read the two letters carefully, we know that there were at least four letters. So in 1 Corinthians 1, 5, verse 9, he talks about a previous letter. So that one's lost to us, but he wrote one prior to 1 Corinthians. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 2 that he's written a letter in between what we know as 1 and 2 Corinthians. So there was one in between. So the one we're studying is kind of like 4 Corinthians, um, the fourth letter to the Corinthians. Maybe there were others. We don't know. But at least he refers to that many. So if you read, if you read Acts 18, um, it tells the story of how Paul went to Corinth and planted the church there. He spent a year and a half there. Um, and then he left and he wrote 1 Corinthians, what we know as 1 Corinthians, from Ephesus. Okay? And he was intending to visit them after he traveled through Macedonia. And he sent Timothy in the meantime. And when Timothy got there, it was like, whoa. He found things way worse than expected. So Paul is this spiritual father, and he just drops everything to go visit them more quickly because of the, the problems. And it turned out to be a really painful visit. So what happened was there was this opposition party that got some traction. So there were these false apostles, like false teacher, preacher types, that came into town, and they sought to win the Corinthians over to their mode of operation, their beliefs, and they were undermining Paul's apostleship and authority and leadership in their lives. So these false apostles would be like the first century equivalent to the health wealth preachers of today. So if, if you remember, we, we studied 1 Corinthians back at the first half of this year. Um, if you remember, you can, you can imagine how Teachers, preachers like that coming into town could get some traction among these folks. So the church in Corinth was shaped way too much by the world and not enough by the cross. So that's why we talked about cruciform living as we walked through 1 Corinthians because the cross needs to be at the center, shaping all of who we are and all of how we live. That's what Paul was doing when he wrote that first letter. Okay? So the way of the cross, humility, sacrifice, self-giving, love. That was not esteemed. It was not characteristic of the church in Corinth. That's why he's writing the first letter to them. And these super apostles, so-called, they boasted. They come into town. They're so impressive. They've got these great resumes. You know, they were probably really good speakers. They're persuasive. So they appear to be impressive and powerful. And they criticized Paul for being unimpressive and weak. 
fact, one of the central ways that they sought to undermine his credibility was to say, he just suffers too much. So affliction and suffering and illness in the ancient world, maybe you know this or have heard it, it was often viewed as a sign of divine displeasure, like Job's friends, <laughs> their theology. Like, if you're suffering this bad, you must have done something wrong because God's just got to be getting you for it. You're, you're just getting paid back for it. So you can just hear these super apostles, these false apostles coming into town and saying, how can Paul be such a powerful, spirit-filled apostle when he suffers so much? I mean, maybe he's getting what he deserves. Serves him right. Oh, and he doesn't charge for his speaking? Hmm, well, you get what you pay for. I mean, just, you can imagine how they're undermining him. So when Paul arrived, after he heard from Timothy that things were not going well, the opposition against him was strong. Instead of dropping the hammer in response, he actually withdraws in order to give them time to repent. He withdraws and he writes this letter. It's soaked with tears. It's called the tearful letter. If you, if you look to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, just flip ahead. you see it there. It's on page 964 if you're using the Pew Bible. So he withdraws. Instead of just judging them on the spot for their rebellious hard-heartedness. Um, he sends this letter, tearful letter, and he's imploring them to repent and return. So 2 Corinthians 2, 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. And the purpose of writing the letter was not to cause you pain. That wasn't the, the ultimate goal, but rather to let you know the abundant love that I have for you and to call them back to repentance. So Paul had to defend his ministry. He had to defend his M.O., and he doesn't do it in order to protect and defend his reputation. Okay? Like most of us, we get criticized, we get undermined, and we are trying to defend our own name. But that's not what Paul was doing in writing this letter. He is, he's not firing back, you know, because of his bruised ego. He's losing his followers or something like that. He's responding because the well-being of the Corinthians is in view, and it's being threatened. Because if the Corinthians drew back, draw back from him and follow these false apostles, they would be drawing back from Christ. They would not be following Jesus any longer. And he just loves them way too much to let that happen. So in defending himself and explaining things, calling them back to himself, he's really calling them back to Christ. So he's defending his cruciform ministry his ministry in the footsteps of Jesus. And he calls them to follow in those same cruciform footsteps. So the title for this series, remember the title for 1 Corinthians was Cruciform Living. The title for this series is Cruciform Ministry. And not just for, you know, professionals like Paul or whatever. It's for all of us. So as we look at 2 Corinthians 1, 1 to 11 this morning, Paul's introducing the letter, but right off the block, he's defending his MO, which is really God's MO. So his suffering and affliction is not a sign of God's displeasure. It's a key way in how God works. It's one of his key methods of operation, and we really need to get that. He wants them to see that his afflictions were actually for their benefit. So far from undermining his apostolic legitimacy and authority, his sufferings were actually evidence that he was Christ's apostle. So Paul wants them to see, and we need to see, that affliction and suffering is divinely intended. So let's dive in here. We'll look first at the introduction, um, the first two verses. Paul, an apostle, you can see why he mentions his apostleship right off the bat because it's under, it's under fire. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He didn't sign up for this. And Timothy, our brother. To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints 
who are in the whole of Achaia. So Corinth is a city inside Achaia, which is a greater region, broader region. And the gospel had spread. I mean, that's, that's the point. But do you see that little phrase, to the church of God, that's at Corinth? It's a little subtle reminder there. The church is God's possession. Okay? You all, you've been bought with a price, like he said back in 1 Corinthians 6. You're not your own. And you certainly don't belong to these false apostles that are leading you astray. So Paul is actually jealous for their allegiance, not because he's on an ego trip, but because he cares about their well-being. Flip back to 2 Corinthians 11 and see how (laughs) he expresses this jealousy for their allegiance. In verse 2, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Page 969 in the Pew Bible. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So, spiritually speaking, we were united to Christ. We are united to Christ when we become Christians. Paul was just like the one that did the introduction. (laughs) And so, If they are being unfaithful to Jesus, he's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Don't do this. He's waving his arms because he loves them. Verse 2, grace to you and peace, which would be, you know, in Paul's mind as a Jew, all of the rich connotations of shalom are in this word peace, holistic flourishing and well-being. So grace to you and peace to you. That's what I'm fighting for. That's what I want for you. This whole letter is going to be grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you go back, um, people that know this stuff, um, first century letter writing, there were a lot of normal forms. And in the typical letter in the first century, it would begin with hello, you know, or greetings. And in Greek, it's karain. And Paul has his theology shaping everything, including his greetings. So he changed karain to charis. So rather than saying just greetings, he says grace to you. So the gospel even changes our greetings. Okay, now let's look at verses 3 to 11 and consider why we need to know and embrace God's mode of operation. So first off, let's look at verses 3 to 7, and we're gonna, we need to pay attention to a couple of key words that are going to be repeated here. So be on the lookout for the words affliction and comfort. So verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So we need to make sure we define some terms here to know what Paul is talking about. So two key terms, affliction and comfort. First off, affliction. So affliction, if you read through the whole of the letter, can be both external and internal. So flip to uh, 2 Corinthians 7. And you'll see him use this language there again. 2 Corinthians 7, 5. When we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted, same word, at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So you know, if you've read the book of Acts or if you've read later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul suffered all kinds of external suffering for the sake of the gospel. He got beat up. 
He got stoned. He got insulted and maligned and all this stuff coming at him because he was preaching the gospel. But also there's internal affliction because he was, his well-being was so wrapped up in the well-being of those that he was ministering to. So if they were struggling, it tore him up. If they weren't doing well, if they were under threat of just wandering away from Jesus, he, he was just anxious about them and concerned. So fears and anxiety within, fighting without. I mean, even as he came to, to Corinth, there was this rebellion that he, that he met. So fighting without, fears within. So all of this stuff for the sake of the gospel. Paul's anxious for his churches. He cared about their spiritual well-being. He was willing to suffer affliction, whether that's external, you know, somebody throwing a rock or hitting you with a rod, or, you know, risking his life in this situation or that situation, risking his comfort in this situation, that situation, for the good of others. He also suffered internally when they weren't doing well spiritually. So his afflictions were all the suffering that he experienced as a result of following Jesus and ministering to other people. Okay, seeking to take the gospel to them, seeking to help them grow in the gospel. So some of that suffering he willingly risked and embraced, some of it found him. <laughs> so I think we need to recognize that the primary meaning here of affliction is suffering that comes in as a result of following Jesus. Okay? But it does seem like it may also include a little bit more than that, be a bit broader, that this affliction can also apply to the things that we experience as a result of living in this fallen, broken world. So I'll give two reasons why I think that might be the case. So look at verse 4. Head back to uh, 2 Corinthians 1 and look at verse 4 and just note the language that Paul uses here. Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And then look at chapter 4, verse 16. So just flip a page, and you'll see how parallel this thought is to chapter 1. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you see the parallels there between affliction and comfort? Outwardly, we're wasting away. Affliction, suffering, as a result of living in this fallen world. Our bodies are decaying. You know, life hurts. All kinds of things like that can come in just as a result of living in a fallen world. But inwardly, we can be renewed. We can be comforted because these light momentary afflictions they're actually growing us. They're preparing us for glory. And they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So outer self wasting away, this light momentary affliction. So it seems to point to a broader affliction that, um, than just, say, persecution suffering. Um, we also need to define comfort, okay? So... When you hear the word comfort, you might think of snugging on a couch under a blanket, you know, without any back pain and with, you know, some comfort food beside you to watch your favorite show or something like that. But this word is way richer than that. So the word can refer to someone who comes alongside or comes near to be an advocate. So a different form of this word is used and, and used to refer to the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16. So listen to John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. It's the same word, to be with you forever. So the Holy Spirit brings comfort to us because he is the comforter. He's the counselor. He's the helper. So he's the helper that comes alongside us and speaks truth to our deepest needs. Right? Speaks the gospel to us. So we have deep suffering and affliction and struggles and whatever, and the Spirit of God can make the truth of God live in our hearts, and comfort is the result, right? Anybody experience this? It's what the Holy Spirit does. 
So he brings this comfort. He helps us know and embrace God's goodness and purposes in the midst of our suffering. So have you ever had the situation where you are really struggling because of some suffering you're going through, some trial you're going through, and you just feel like throwing up your hands, and then the Spirit of God brings some truth, some promise to your mind and makes it real in your heart, and your circumstances don't change at all, but all of a sudden, you're doing better. You just got comforted. That's the Spirit of God, the Comforter, bringing this gospel comfort in the midst of our affliction. So that's the comfort that Isaiah promised and prophesied would come. Comfort, comfort my people. Isaiah 40, verse 1 says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, which was quoted, you know, John the Baptist getting, preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus comes. So it's no surprise that in Luke 2.25, it says this, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him so these people were longing for the Messiah to come and bring the comfort the consolation that God had promised in Isaiah 40 so the comfort in view here we're defining terms I think we understand affliction primarily suffering as a result of following Jesus but it can be also suffering we experience by living in this fallen world. But also we need to understand what the comfort is. It's the comfort that comes from knowing the grace and peace that is ours in Christ. So our greatest problem, if we're in Christ, if we're trusting Jesus, it's been dealt with. It's our sin. If we trust Jesus, his death in the cross, in our place, for our sins, we are washed clean. We have a clear conscience we have peace with God. That's comforting. Especially if we've known, you know, being plagued by guilt and shame as a result of our sin. So because of the gospel, our deepest fears and anxieties have been met with the grace and peace that only Jesus can bring. It's deeper, it's stronger, like the song that we saw. And then as we follow Jesus, what do we do? We deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow him and we're going to suffer we're going to die daily that others might live and as we suffer we experience the comfort of God the strength of God and we're able then to give that comfort to others who suffer so Paul's afflictions are not a sign of divine displeasure and neither are yours They don't call his apostolic credibility into question. They actually endorse it. So Paul's afflictions are a result of him following the crucified Savior. It's all for the good of these others, their comfort through him. So the comfort that, Paul gives, that God gives to Paul, he's going to pass it along for the good of others. So listen, Paul wants them, the Corinthians, to see Someone who is following Jesus considers their afflictions and they do not ask, why me? Especially not in some raging, you know, question God's goodness and wisdom sort of why me. They ask, who else? Not why me, but who else? So if you've experienced afflictions, you are in a unique position to, one, experience God's comfort for those afflictions. And then, two, when you've experienced that comfort, you're going to run into people with the same afflictions, and you're going to be able to say, I've got something for you. Because I know your suffering, and I know the comfort that can be given to that suffering. So when we experience suffering, we should wonder, I wonder who else. So this is the wisdom of God's intention. This is his MO, to recycle grace and mercy that he gives you 
and use it, repurpose it for someone else who's gone through similar sufferings and afflictions and struggles. So one example, you guys know Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been quadriplegic for most of her life. I don't know how old she is, in her late 60s maybe, and she had a diving accident at 17. So she knows some things about suffering, and she has been able to comfort countless people as a result. So here's one of the things she says in a little book called Hope, the Best of Things. I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, and he will know what I mean because he knows me. And I will say, Jesus, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. And then she says this, but the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. So Paul understood. He knew and he embraced this method of operation in God's economy. So he wasn't ashamed of his afflictions, of his sufferings, of his anxieties, the fears within, the fightings without, his tears. He's not hiding them and trying to, you know, posture himself as some spiritual stoic that's got it all together. He's happy to boast in his weaknesses. You see how this section in chapter 1 is like a nutshell. If you're familiar with the book, it's like a nutshell of what's to come. Like later on, the thorn in the flesh, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So he's happy to boast in his weaknesses and his afflictions because he knows that the power of God is perfected in his weakness. So he goes on to actually give them a specific example in his life. So this is letter B on the outline, reliance. So if you're using, yeah, there's an um, outline in the bulletin if that's helpful or it's up here on the screen. Okay, so all a part of knowing and embracing God's MO. We need to understand what, what he's saying about affliction and comfort, and then we also need to see this purpose of reliance that's getting worked out, and Paul shows that through his own life example here in 8 to 10. Look at it now. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, we do not know what this deep affliction was in Asia. Okay, There's some options that commentators throw out there, but we, we can't know for sure. And we don't need to try to figure out what it was because Paul makes the point clear enough in what he writes. So Paul and maybe his little band of fellow workers in Asia, at some point, got so heavily burdened by this affliction that they just felt like it was all over. Like, can you imagine getting to the point where the kind of little <laughs> internal message, like you're, <laughs> in your mind, you're just, it's all over. It's just, it's done. I'm done. We're dead. <laughs> That's it. So heavily burdened, they felt like it was all over. They might as well just throw in the towel, just give up and die. I mean, is it encouraging to any of you that the Apostle Paul felt this way? So do you see how he's saying, I'm not ashamed that I felt like throwing in the towel. i got to tell you this. 
because I want you to know the kind of comfort that God has for even people in, those, in that situation. For others who despair of life and feel like throwing in the towel. So he says that there was divine purpose in this affliction. The roots of even the Apostle Paul's self-reliance went that deep that God gave him that severe of a trial that he would not rely on himself but on God who raises the dead. So notice here, again, God's methods and means and ways here. The fact that Paul's affliction was that severe does not mean that Paul was being punished. Like, ooh, he must have really screwed up, and so God just got him. No. But still, those roots of self-reliance were really deep, so God was freeing him from that. Rooting it up. And in the meantime, showing Paul how powerful is the resurrection power. Like how powerful he is. If you really want to know how strong the resurrection power is, you have to get closer and closer to the brink. Like if you're back here, a little bit of threat, you'll know a little bit of resurrection power. If you want to get the fullness of it, you go all the way to the brink. So he says there, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Divine purpose in the affliction. So that deliverance led Paul to set his hope on God. Okay? He did it. Like, he delivered me. I felt like throwing in the towel. He delivered us. He can do it again. If he did it in that situation, he can do it in this situation. In fact, he can deliver us from any affliction. And, and even if he doesn't deliver us from some, you know, earthly situation, he can deliver us from the fear of death. And then we really experience the power of God who raises the dead. So, so Paul gets God's M.O. He gets it. And actually, he learned it through this really severe affliction in Asia. And because he does get it, he doesn't chafe and kick against God for the afflictions and suffering that he experiences. He actually looks instead for the comfort that God can give, and then he looks for others who need that same comfort. So God's M.O. has become Paul's M.O., and it's why he says crazy things in 2 Corinthians, like in 12.15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. 13.9, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Or, 2 Corinthians 4.12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So if, if comfort and life comes to other people as we lay our lives down and embrace affliction, then bring it on. I'm so happy that this is how God works. Bring it on. Because I'm going to experience the, the resurrection power, because I can't do this, my own strength. And then other people are going to be blessed. They're going to get help. They're going to get comfort. So bring it on. And he welcomes it. That is totally counter-cultural for sure, but it's, it runs against the grain of our natural hearts, doesn't it? We want to save our lives. We want to save our comfort. We shrink back from risk and affliction. And when we do, we're shrinking back from following Jesus and we're shrinking back from the comfort that he wants to give us and the resurrection power that he wants to show us and the opportunity to see it at work in other people. So Paul knows he's embraced. He even rejoices in God's MO. So remember how he started out verse 3? With blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With blessing, with praise. This is letter C on the outline. Paul blesses God for his wisdom to turn affliction to blessing. He praises God for the very suffering that his opponents point to to call his apostleship into question. 
So verses 8 to 10 recounts how Paul learned this lesson, right, in that really severe affliction. And he's learned it, and so he's blessing God for his wisdom and for his ways. And in doing so, what is he doing? If the Corinthians were following these false apostles, he's calling them back, and he's inviting them to know and embrace and then rejoice in God's mode of operation. Like, would you bless God with me here? To bless the God who ordains affliction, that he may give comfort, that others might be comforted through you. Paul learned the lesson, will the Corinthians learn it, is the question here in the letter. But as we read it, it's will we learn the lesson? Spurgeon once said this, he said, it's a blessed thing that when we are most downcast, then we are most lifted up by the consolations comforts of the Spirit. One reason is trials make more room for consolation. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles. The spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes more room for consolation. So we might know that but we don't, like, we don't want it. That's why it's know and embrace. Are we going to know it and embrace it? Because only when you embrace it are you going to bless God for his wisdom here and not shrink back. So if we learn this lesson, what lesson, we need to put some shoe leather on it. Or in this case, the Corinthians were to put their money where their mouth was by getting on their knees. Okay, so letter D on the outline, joining and multiplying. Look at verse 11. He then says, you also must help us by prayer. Do you know this is God's MO? Do you embrace it? Then prove it by getting on your knees and praying for us. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So rather than being ashamed of Paul and shrinking back and aligning with these false apostles that are saying, hey, if you follow, you know, if you're a Christian, you ought to be healthy and wealthy and be just as impressive as us. Hey. No. Even if it means you're going to be maligned and thought less of in Corinthian culture, that, you know, pride was a vice, I'm sorry, was a virtue in that day. So if they actually follow Paul, they're going to probably invite more persecution. Okay. Are you going to embrace this? You'll experience the resurrection power, you'll experience the comfort, you'll be a conduit of that comfort to others. Along the way, you, you will be afflicted more. But join me. Come on. <laughs> Help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So join me. I'm going to die that others might live. Would you pray that I would continue to be strengthened for that, would be delivered from you know, people that want to kill me so that I can keep preaching the gospel? And when God answers and delivers me, if I'm the only one praying and God delivers, then I say thank you. But if other people are joining in, then the thanksgiving multiplies. So join me and watch God get more glory through all of this. So Paul's calling the Corinthians to align with this suffering apostle to pray for him because he is the one following Jesus, the suffering Savior, to bring life and comfort to as many as possible. And as they do, God answers these prayers, delivering Paul, bringing gospel comfort to more and more people, and more and more thanksgiving goes up to God. So do you see how appropriate this request for prayer is by Paul? You see it? Just in the flow of what he's saying. All at once, like all at the same time, he's testing their repentance and their allegiance. Are you going to really come back and follow me and leave these jokers behind? And he's getting help by their prayers because he's humble enough to ask for it. But not just that. He, he's seeking to spread and multiply thanksgiving to God through answered prayer. 
He wants God to get more glory. He's seeking to have the Corinthians and us join him in embracing God's MO. C.S. Lewis, in The Four Loves, he lays out the alternative. It's dangerous if we reject this path of cruciform ministry. Here's what he says. Of all arguments against love, none makes so strong an appeal to my nature as, careful, this might lead you to suffering. When I respond to that appeal, I seem to myself to be a thousand miles away from Christ. If I am sure of anything, I am sure that his teaching was never meant to confirm my congenital preference for safe investments and limited liabilities. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So God is calling us to cruciform ministry as we walk through this book of 2 Corinthians. So we need to see and embrace this way of life, daily dying that others might live. This, this goes down to the most mundane levels and even to the point of our brothers and sisters who are risking their lives for the sake of the gospel, you know, persecuted church. So listen, if a husband tries to save his life in reference to his wife, selfishly living, you are going to kill your marriage. But if you die daily, you breathe life, death at work in me, life in you. If a parent selfishly doesn't sacrifice for their child and get engaged, and even if you're like, oh, I don't want, you die, you breathe life into that relationship. You breathe life into that other person, blessing and comfort and all kinds of things. But if you selfishly shrink back, you kill you bring death into that relationship. It just works at every level. So God is calling us to die that others might live. Costly choices to love family members who are in desperate need of the comfort that only God can provide. Or this adoption and foster care, this little girl on the screen, or those of you who have fostered or adopted. It is just this a willingness to embrace the death of so much comfort and freedom and heart safety. Why? So that gospel comfort can come to a little quivering, afflicted soul. That's following Paul, who's following Jesus. So it's what Jesus has done for us. This can feel like this really heavy burden, like, Oh, I can't do this. I want to just go run and hide. Okay. But we get to come to the table and get strengthened by grace. We come to the word to get strengthened by grace. We are reminded at the table that we feed on that grace. Because listen, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Aren't you glad this is God's M.O.? He didn't shrink back from our need. He came right after us and assumed it all. So let's deny our impulses to save our lives and our superficial comfort. Let's deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus and bring true comfort to others. It's cruciform ministry. It's a life that knows and embraces that this is how God works. Remember in Acts 20, 35, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So only the gospel of Jesus, his willing death in our place that we might live, 
It's the only thing that can empower this kind of cruciform life and ministry. So let's come to the table now and really ponder and focus on God's method of operation, most clearly and beautifully displayed in the incarnation and on the cross, the death of Jesus in our place. So if the men who are going to serve can come forward. Let me just, again, say a few more words as we prepare to participate in the table. Some of us need to confess and repent of saving our lives, saving our comfort, shrinking back from suffering selfishly. Okay, Jesus died for that too. And then he can give grace for us to live selflessly, lovingly, sacrificially. But let's all fix our eyes on Jesus who didn't shrink back from the cross. He died that we might live. He was afflicted that we might be comforted. He suffered infinite suffering on the cross for our sins to bring us deep, eternal comfort so that we could be empowered to give up superficial comfort to bring deep comfort to others. And then participating in this table is not just about in here, it's about leaving here, being strengthened to go out as we eat and drink this grace that's ours in Christ. We follow our cruciform Savior as we leave who said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, wants to save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. So go find it by following Jesus. So if you've declared your allegiance to Jesus through baptism and are trusting him as your Savior and your Lord, you're welcome to participate in this table. If not, we're glad you're here. You are welcome here. Please just let the elements pass when they come by. Um, we pray that you'll soon come to trust Jesus as your Savior and follow him. If we can answer any questions, we would love to do that. So let's just all please wait until everyone's been served. The musicians are going to be playing quietly in the background, just giving us all time to prayerfully examine our hearts and do business with God. So let's pray, and then we'll participate. Father of mercies and God of all comfort, we thank you that all of that mercy and comfort is ours because of our Lord Jesus Christ whose death his spilled blood and broken body we celebrate as we participate in the table I pray that his sacrifice his willing sacrifice him dying that we might live would be so sweet to us that it would strengthen us to gladly spend and be spent for the sake of others. And where we have selfishly shrunk back from the affliction that comes from love, Lord, help us to repent and turn and trust Jesus and follow him on the path of cruciform living and cruciform ministry. In his great name we pray, amen.